Maggie. Good morning, everybody. So I was looking. I lost a bottle of water somewhere. So if you see one wandering around on its own, it's mine. That was a joke. Are y'all awake? Okay, good. All right. That's going to be on the recording, just so you know. Everybody's going to know that our church has no sense of humor. That's on you, not on me. That was solid. All right. Good morning. Um, great worship this morning. I appreciate David and the band leading us. So last week, we, we finished up the birth narrative of the story of Jesus and, and him staying behind in the temple. And we learned that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time, even though the math doesn't work out in our minds. God's bigger than our math, and it's the way it works. We talked about Jesus' human growth, and we thought about what that means for us to grow like Jesus did. And, and this is the reason that we gather on Sunday mornings. And in the life groups, it's to grow in our knowledge of God and to know Jesus better. That's the whole point of this whole deal, right? It's for us to know God better. We've been talking about that for the last couple of months, that we want to know God and make Him known. If you'll recall, we began this study of Luke by talking about the miraculous birth of two little boys. Quiz time, who were the two little boys? What? No, that's from a podcast. He's being funny too. He thinks he got jokes. Two boys, miraculous birth. John, thank you, Elder Kerry. No one else. John and Jesus, really, y'all? Come on. Uh, there's going to be some more questions in here that y'all are going to have to answer out loud. So just get in here, all right? Hang in here with me. Over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to see these two boys transition into men and into the ministry that God's called them to. And in our passage today, we're going to read about the ministry of John the Baptist, meaning we're going to be talking about the time of John's ministry, the, in, in other words, the context. We're going to talk about the purpose that, for which God sent him and the expected results for those whom John is preaching to. Okay, so today we're going we're gonna to talk about those three things, and I'll cover that again in just a minute. But this ministry is the fulfillment of something that Zechariah, John's father, prophesied over him. And I want us to look at that again real quick this morning in Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 76 and 77. I want, I want us to kind of get our minds back in this stuff that we talked about a couple of months ago. Remember when, when Zechariah brings, he and his wife Elizabeth bring John into the temple for circumcision and all those things and they're going to name him. Remember the crowds wanted to name him uh, Zechariah after his father and Elizabeth said no, his name is going to be John and they looked at Zechariah and he writes on a tablet, no, his name is John and then because of that obedience, miraculously now John can speak and he can hear again. Y'all remember this story? Everybody this tracking with you? Okay. In that prophecy, at, right after John gets the ability to speak again, one of the things he says, and you child will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And so today we're going to pick up in the first, verse, first nine verses of Luke chapter 3. Next week, we're going to finish up this section in Luke 3 by talking about the message of John the Baptist. But in this, uh, and in that, in that section, verses 10 through 20, there is, in verse 10, there's a question that's asked. And it took everything within me to not go to that today, because that's, for me, that's the good stuff. But in verse 10, the people that John is preaching to ask the question, what then should we do after they hear this message, okay? And so how do we respond to the ministry and the message of God that is being delivered through John the Baptist? Today is going to be the setup to answer and to understand that question that next week. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But for today, let's read Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9 together. And then we're going to break it down into these three sections. We're going to talk about the context in which John is writing. We're going to look at the purpose that John is writing. And we're going to look at the expected results of what, uh, what John is hoping to happen at the end of this message. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trinacus, and Lysanias, uh, tetrarch of Abilene. During the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to, the, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight and the rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, that's some strong language, isn't it? We're going to look at that here in just a minute. These first two verses, uh, with the names that I can't pronounce very well are important into the narrative of the story. And I want to spend the first portion of our time today talking about that. Just like we've seen Luke share the testimony of reliable witnesses. Remember we talked about that with, with um, uh, I'll shoot, Anna and uh, what was the other prophet? And Simeon, right. Luke is establishing these reliable witnesses. He's going to do the same today with the historical context. He's going to do it by telling us when this ministry takes place. So point number one for today is that Luke provides historical context for the ministry of John. So let's take a little bit of a journey through some Roman history as we look at these people that Luke is, is using for his context. So Tiberius Caesar was the son-in-law of Caesar Augustus. And, and Caesar Augustus took power as the emperor of Rome after the assassination of Julius Caesar and the resulting civil war. We're going to delve into that a little bit more, but the big picture here is Julius Caesar becomes the first emperor of Rome. If y'all remember what happened on the eyes of March, anybody? He was stabbed to death, right? Julius Caesar was, what? Etu Brute, yeah, Brutus was part of that. All right, that means and you, Brutus. So this happens, and then Rome goes into civil war for a little while, and at the end of that civil war, this guy Caesar Augustus takes control. And Caesar Augustus is the one that called for the census that set the birth of Jesus in motion. Remember from verse 1 of chapter 2, where it said, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Y'all getting the context here? Okay, so we've got Julius Caesar. We all know about him because of Shakespeare, right? Julius Caesar is killed. Civil War, Caesar Augustus takes control. He calls for a census to see how big his empire is, okay? So Augustus, who was known also as Octavius, ruled until his death in 14 AD. After the reign of Augustus, Tiberius Caesar reigned from 14 to 37 AD. And this depiction uh, is a, there's a picture I got up here that's a depiction of Tiberius on a ring. And actually, this is on display at the Met. Can y'all see that? It's a little hard to see. That dude got a honking nose. You have to look at that later. Anyway, I did that, I found that during my research that that's on display in the Met Museum in New York, but that's Tiberius Caesar, okay? And so, or Caesar Tiberius. So Caesar Tiberius places Pontius Pilate in charge of Judea, where he was the Roman governor from about 26 to 36, 37 AD. So for about 10 years, 11 years, 
Pontius Pilate. Y'all remember who this guy is, right? That's the one that the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before and ask him to have him crucified. And he's like, no, this, this guy's done nothing wrong. They're like, we want him crucified anyway. And so Pontius Pilate says, I wash my hands of this. Y'all remember all that? Okay. So what is his role there? An inscription of a, at Caesarea Martima gives it a technical title of his position as a prefect of Judea. And a prefect was a leader of about 500,000 military troops. And so this office involved military, financial, and judicial responsibilities. Okay, so in other words, he is there, Pontius Pilate is there to oversee Judea, to make sure that they followed the rule of Roman law and to keep the peace so that the money that they would receive from taxes would continue to, to move to Rome. That is his job, okay? However, Pilate, don't know if you know this, was not liked by Jewish people. We know that the Jewish people didn't like uh, being occupied by other countries. And here's an example of why and specifically why they don't like Pilate. One of my, my dictionaries said that a conflict with the Jewish people, Pilate's cruel behavior and disregard for the Jewish customs became immediately away, uh, upon his arrival in Palestine in AD 26. He obtained his position through his mentor who was known to hate the Jews. And Pilate first offended the Jews by bringing Roman standards with images of the emperor into Jerusalem. So Pilate comes in with these big pictures of Tiberius Caesar, okay? Or excuse me, at that time it was Augustus Caesar. No, Tiberius. So the Jewish people sent a delegation to Caesarea and pleaded with Pilate for five days to remove the images from the city. And on the sixth day, Pilate sent soldiers into the crowd. At his signal, they were to draw their swords and to cut the Jews into pieces if they did not allow Caesar's image. The Jews fell down together and exposed their necks for they would rather die than transgress their law. Pilate, not desiring revolution, decided to remove the images from Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people, because of, you know, the big commandment of don't have any other gods before me, were not about having Caesar's uh, face plastered all over the place. And they said, we'd rather die. Okay. Y'all feeling the tension here? There's some, there's some hatred here between Pilate and the Jewish people. So now we understand the, the Roman rulers that Luke gives us in his list uh, and a bit of understanding of how Israel felt about them. So let's talk about Herod for a minute. Toward the end of the period of the Roman Republic, uh, Pompey, the celebrated general, began campaigning, and Pompey, by the way, good friends with Julius Caesar, okay, he begins campaigning in the eastern half of the Mediterranean world, winning new territories for Rome. After a short siege, Pompey took Jerusalem in 63 BC, establishing Roman rule in Palestine. In the east, the Romans tended to allow the continuation of traditional government structures and used favored nationals as client rulers. At this time, Rome was morphing from a republic ruled by the Senate to an empire ruled by an emperor, and this change had an impact on the administrative structures of Palestine. They're talking specifically about the, the entrance of Julius Caesar bringing the army into Rome, which was a big no-no, crossing the, the, the Tigris River, all right? And, and he becomes emperor, and then he rules for about five years, and then they kill him, Okay. So for, for our benefit, all of this is happening while Julius Caesar is taking control of Rome and then losing control. And then it says on the early client rulers in the Palestine area for the Romans was an Agumenian, uh, 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 I have to think about how to say this, Antipater, who served as a court official for the Hasmonean rulers. The Romans saw Antipater as a useful ally and he was appointed to rule over Judea by Julius Caesar in 47 B.C., Antipater was given the title guardian, presumably with the authority to gather taxes. Antipater and his descendants were neither Romans nor true Jews, but retained some measure of authority in Palestine region until the death of Herod Agrippa II at the end of the first century. 
Antipas' descendants were the Herods. Okay, is this making sense? Antipas' sons, or son, Herod the Great, had himself elected as king of the Jews by the Roman Senate during the chaotic period following Antipas' death. His authority in the region became nearly absolute, and this title was given in Rome in 40 BC because of the sponsorship of Mark Antony. But it took until 37 BC for Herod to gain mastery over Jerusalem and the region of Judea, thus establishing himself as a petty king under the sponsorship and control of Rome. Okay, so the Jewish people did not like any of these Herods because they proclaimed themselves to be king of the Jews, but they're not from the line of David. You see the problem there? For the Jewish people, if you're going to be a king, you've got to be in the line of David. That's how it works. And Herod, who, who is not, there, he's actually an Edomite who migrated into the area of South Judea during the Babylonian exile. And so you've got this family that moves into the southern part of Judea, sets up shop, the Romans come in to take over. Herod and, uh, and Julius Caesar were buddies. And he's like, oh, you, you can be king down there. And so they elect him, Mark Antony, they're, they're buddies. And so they elect him as king in Rome and they put them over the Jewish people and call him king of the Jews. Okay? So after Herod the Great dies, his territory is split up into several smaller territories that were divided up among his children. And I've got a map, I think, Anna, that shows all this. So all of these different colors used to be the kingdom of Judea. And after Herod the Great's death, he splits this up amongst all of his kids. And the green areas, if I remember correctly, are all, or no, excuse me, the purple is what um, our Herod is, is um, ruler over. Okay, so now that we've taken about a third of our time to talk about Roman history, let's move into the message already. Okay, the reason I wanted to go through all of that, it matters because it gives us great context to consider the ministry of John the Baptist. Like we, we know, we've talked about a bunch about the Babylonian exile, the uh, Assyrian exile, all these occupations, all these other countries that came over. We read about those in the prophets in the Old Testament of how God is using those nations to punish God's people because they have again and again and again failed to follow God. And so as we look at this ministry of John the Baptist, we're going to see John repeating some of those same things. But Judea is in a tough spot. It's in the midst of this latest set of overlords that the birth of John and Jesus takes place. They've grown up under this crazy set of governing bodies and the constant strife that's happening between the Romans and the Herods and the Jewish leaders. Okay? And this is where you and I have an on-ramp into this story. Okay? And this is important. And you think, well, what do I have to do with the Romans or the Herods or the Jewish people? Nothing. I have nothing to do with any of those people. But this is our on-ramp. This is where we merge in and see ourselves in what is happening. No matter what our lives look like, there is some level of turmoil at all times in some area of our life. I appreciate Lizzie's testimony this morning talking about the turmoil of her life over the last couple of weeks with this student that she's been struggling with. This was excellent for us today. Thankfully, none of us are living under the occupation of another country that's placed a figurehead over us and is now calling himself a king, right? That would, that would be horrible, right? But life for us is still very difficult at times, and we deal regularly with things like broken marriages or debt or employment issues or health care or abuse. And the list can go on and on and on. We are no strangers to suffering here where we live. But this is the result of living in a fallen world. And the world's not much different today than it was back then in terms of the political dumpster fire that they are finding themselves in when John is preaching this message. Our lives are no less troubled, but admittedly, they're troubled by different things. 
But whether it's us or our friends or our family, all of us are in the midst of some kind of turmoil. And it's in the midst of turmoil that John enters our story today. He comes from where? Out of the wilderness. He comes with a message that seems harsh at first, but when it's fully rolled out, when we find out, the very, we find out that this is the very thing that can deliver us from all of this turmoil, all this pain and suffering, that the people in this time in history, in this historical context, all the things that they need deliverance from, Jesus can do. And the same is true for us. All of the turmoil that exists in our lives, all the things that we need deliverance from, Jesus can do that as well. So John comes from the wilderness. We see this in all, in three of the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we see it today in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, the second half of that, where it said, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, John comes from the middle of nowhere, dressed funny, eating weird things, preaching a real strong message. So point number two is that John is preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance. So look at verses three through six with me again in Luke chapter three. It says, he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight and the rough smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. Let's talk a minute about what John is preaching. It says in verse 3 that he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So let's, let's talk about baptism for just a moment because I think we all have a pretty good understanding of what it means for us today. But I want us to understand this, this concept in Jewish culture and the history that's portrayed by this significant thing. And there's a significant moment that I'm thinking about where this application of water happens. It's, it's an application of water that affects the whole world and it cleanses the whole world. Anybody got any guesses? The flood right? What did God use the flood for? To clear the world of what? Sin and evil, right? Okay. In addition, there's these ritual washings that happen all throughout a person's life, but specifically there's a command found in Numbers with regard to the washing and the removal of sin. Look at Numbers 19, <coughs> 7 through 10 with me. It'll be up on the screen. It says, then the priest must wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. After that, he may enter the camp but he will remain ceremonially unclean until the evening. The one who burned the, the cow must also wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he will remain unclean until the evening. A man who is clean is to gather up the cow's ashes and deposit them outside the camp in a ceremonially clean place. The ashes will be kept by the Israelite community for preparing the water to remove impurity. It is a sin offering. Then the one who gathers up the cow's ashes must wash his clothes, and he will remain unclean until the evening. This is a permanent statute for the Israelites and for the alien who resides among them. So when we think about baptism from a historical Jewish cultural context, it's the act of dipping something into water momentarily as a cleansing, ceremonial, and an initiation rite. Okay, so God is speaking through John a command that he's already spoken a long time ago. 
that the people of Israel had forgotten its meaning. He is saying, we need to be cleaned. There was a need for them to be cleansed of their sin. However, this act of baptism would not and will not change their spirit. If simple actions could have fixed the problem, then there would have been no point for Jesus to come. If, if this process, this sacrificial system had truly worked, there would have been no point for Jesus. The problem was not and is not God's ability to forgive, but rather our unwillingness to stop sinning. I'm going to say that again. The problem is not with God's ability to forgive. The problem is in our ability to stop sinning. That's why we see all through the Old Testament, Israel is suffering and going through all these different occupations that we talked about just a moment ago because it's God using these other nations to call Israel out. You see that all through the prophets where God is saying to the people, stop sinning, stop doing these things I'm telling you not to do. Return to me. This message is the same, and this is why John is preaching about a baptism, but not just any baptism, a baptism of repentance. Prior to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the only way that sin could be atoned for was through the sacrifice of a life, usually uh, or, or in this context of an animal. That's what we see in this passage from Numbers, that a cow was sacrificed and its ashes were used as part of the purification process. The problem was that people's desire to sin was greater than their desire to be cleansed. And this is still a problem today. The same is true for us. What John is calling for then is that we repent so that we can be forgiven. Repentance is turning from sin, not simply being sorry for sin. You tracking with that? Repentance is turning from sin. It's acknowledging the sin and moving away from it. And the lack of repentance is why Jesus came and why God sent John to prepare the way. Jesus came because Israel could not do it on their own. John's ministry was like so many prophets before him. He was to to call out the sin of Israel and to prepare them to encounter God. And this is why Luke reminds the people that he's writing to of Isaiah's words. I don't think that when Luke wrote this that he is quoting something that John is saying. I think he is we're quoting this for the, for the benefit of Tiberius, the guy he's writing this letter to, for our benefit to remind him. Look at what Isaiah says. It says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Who's he talking about? Who's Isaiah prophesying about? John the Baptist, the guy in the wilderness who's proclaiming the way of the Lord. And then in verse 5, he talks about how every valley is going to be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. He's not talking about physical things. He's talking about a posture of a heart. A humility. And he's talking about that in verse 6. He says, so that everyone will see the salvation of God. This is what John's message is about. It's about God saving his people. The goal of John's preaching was that people would see their sin and repent to experience the salvation of God. We read in Acts that on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches, he calls for repentance and being baptized. Kids, by the way, well, the kids that are in here, Peter, who we learned about today, who denied Jesus three times and Jesus forgives him, what's he tell him to do? Feed my sheep, right? Which means take care of my people. That same Peter, pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter preaches. The Holy Spirit comes as Jesus promised, comes out on everybody, and Peter begins to preach. And one of the things he says in verse 38 of chapter 2, he says, um, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church, I want us to see that repentant hearts is the purpose of John's ministry. Remember, we were going to talk about the context. That's the historical world that he lived in. And now we just finished his purpose. His purpose is repentant hearts. And then the third thing is that a repentant heart produces recognizable fruit. Um, admittedly, we talk a lot about fruit at TGP. I, don't, um, I know why, but it comes up a lot. It's a good, tangible reminder of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look at the way that John addresses the crowds that showed up to hear him preach. Okay? And this is some, some strong language to say the least. And it doesn't say that Jesus is talking to just religious leaders, to criminals, or some other evildoer. He is talking to the people that showed up. Now, and understand too that like this is a summary of John's sermon, right? We understand that. This is not a transcript of all the things that John said. Luke is portraying to us the idea of John's message. And he makes three points in his sermon. I want us to see that. In the summary of John's sermon, number one, the first thing he says is that that of his sermon is that the people have become serpents. Now, it doesn't spell this out for me, but what comes to mind when you think of a serpent in biblical context? The Garden of Eden, evil. So John is in this message telling the people, you're evil. He says, who has warned you about the coming wrath? He's calling them out on the carpet just like the prophets of old. And the second point of his sermon is that the, the way they ought to act as God's children and a reminder that their heritage is not going to save them. He said, look, you're acting like evildoers. And that's not the way you should act. You should produce good fruit. And, and he says, and by the way, don't just say that our father is Abraham and therefore I'm secured in, in the kingdom of God. He says, because God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these rocks. And point number three is, What's going to happen if they don't turn from their wicked ways towards God? Look at with me again, verses 7 through 90. He says to the crowds who come out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produced fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And then in verse 9, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We see the same imagery in John chapter 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branch. Where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branch, abide in me and I will produce fruit through you. And any branch that does not produce fruit will be cut away and what? Thrown into the fire. John is preaching towards the salvation that will come through Jesus. This is his job. This is what he was born for. He is to prepare people's hearts for the work that Jesus will do for them. Jesus is their salvation. But what does that mean? We talk about salvation. It's a churchy word. It means to be saved. But to be saved from what? The Dictionary of Bible Themes says, Scripture stresses that the fallen human beings are cut off from God on account of their sin. All need to be saved. If they enter into a new relationship with God as their creator and redeemer. Salvation is not the result of human achievement, privilege, or wisdom, but depends totally upon the graciousness of a loving God, supremely expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. People must respond in repentance and faith if they are to benefit 
from God's offer of salvation in Christ. Church, salvation is what delivers us from divine judgment. All of us are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for our actions. But just being sorry will not cut it. You ever have somebody who who wronged you in some way and then they come and apologize and you know full well that their apology is surface level only, that nothing has changed about their heart and you know without a shadow of a doubt that that thing that they're apologizing, they're going to do again. Everybody understand? Everybody feel that? They know what that's like? This is what John's preaching against. The problem is not that we're not sorry for our sin because often we are. Or as I say to my kids, you're not sorry that you did it, you're sorry you got caught, right? I've been there, I was a child once too, you've been there. It's not enough to just be sorry. Something has to change in our hearts. This is the attitude that John is addressing. God's people were growing through the motions of asking for forgiveness by offering sacrifices, but their hearts were tilted toward living as they pleased and asking for forgiveness again and again later down the road. He's saying that the fruit of these people's lives tells that they are not growing from God's family tree. So what does he call them to do in verse 8? He says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. The message to the people on the banks of the Jordan River is the same as the message that God has for all people today. Our hearts are tilted towards sin. We're born that way. That's what we desire. That's what we think about. We need Jesus so that we can be saved from the wrath of God when we are judged. And don't think that just because you call yourself a Christian or you go to church from time to time that you are quote-unquote safe. He goes on to say in verse 8 that this... Uh, to call out the idea that a person's heritage, or in our case, our culture, will do anything to bring about salvation. Culturally, in the South, so many people call themselves Christians. So many people say that they believe in God. But those are the same people that John is calling out and saying, the fruit of your life does not say that you are connected to the family tree of God. Salvation, deliverance, from God's divine judgment can only be found in repentance and faith. Without repentance, there is no salvation. That is a key element of salvation. Just because you go to church or your parents or your grandparents or a significant other have a relationship with God does not mean that you do. Salvation is personal. It is not a group activity that you get participation points for even though you don't contribute. Right? We also know how that feels, to work in a group and to take credit for something you didn't do. Salvation doesn't work that way. Just because somebody in your life that you're close to is a believer does not automatically mean that you do. Repentance is about something that happens in our heart. It's about a change that's made. It's something that God does inside of us when we get connected to the branch that changes the trajectory of our life. Now, John didn't get to see the fulfillment of his ministry because he was killed not long after all this takes place. But we're going to see, get to see the full message that he preached next week and what that means for us. But I want to leave us with this thought today. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter employs people to be saved. Read it with me again. He says, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say in verse 39 and 40 that this salvation is for everyone. 
He said, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. You see that after spending three years with Jesus and learning from him that the message that Peter preaches is no different from the one that God told John to preach. Peter is preaching the same thing. Repent, be baptized, and be saved. This ministry that God did through John is one that is still needed in our lives today. Nothing has changed. A call to repentance for us, for our family, and for our friends is the beginning of living in a relationship with God. Like I said before, if there's no repentance, there is no salvation. All of us are in need of it. And today as we close, I want us to, to take time to, to truly repent of those sins that we know that we just keep going back to. Dave, if you would go on, come up and he's going to play for us as we pray at the end. But in order for us, church, to produce recognizable fruits, our hearts must firmly be rooted in Christ. That is the only way we will ever produce fruit. This is not something that we can do our own. Repentance does not happen on our own. We can't muster that out of ourselves. If it could be done by us, then there'd been no point for Jesus to come at all. This is the result that John is preaching towards. The purpose, the result that John is looking for in the people that are hearing his message is repentance and to be baptized to signify the cleansing that is happening in their hearts. But again, this is a work of God. Luke begins this part of the narrative with a historical context, showing the turmoil that John's ministry began in and exists in. And the same is true for us, that there's turmoil in our lives. Then we find that the purpose for John is to prepare the way for Jesus. And then he goes on and does this by calling for repentance in the hearts of those that were listening. And as we close today, I don't want us to miss the opportunity to think about how these three things can affect our lives right now, today. God is calling, no matter what turmoil we or other people find ourselves in, the reason that we participate in the body of Christ is to know Jesus and to make him known. And the way we begin to know Jesus is through repentance. And we can receive this message and we can share it by beginning with a repentant heart. So today I want to guide us in prayer again for a few moments. And we're going to talk through, we're going to pray through a couple of things. I'm going to, I'll say a bit and then let us have a moment of silent prayer. And then I'll close this out towards the end. But I want to remind us that our goal today is to know Jesus. And if you've not begun with repenting yourself, that's the first place to start. And I want to say today that if you've never had or taken the opportunity for salvation, today can be the day for that. Carrie's sitting right here in the front. If you'd like to pray with somebody while we're going through this, feel free to walk up, grab him. Y'all can go in another part of the room or the building. But I don't want anybody to leave today without an opportunity to receive Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about this message that you have for us today, as we think specifically about the turmoil in our lives, and the turmoil in the lives of the people that we know and love that are around us. Father, I ask that as we think about those things right now, that we would be able to release them to you. Father, and I ask that you would um, help us to see that even in the midst of all that, 
that you are still God and that you still love us. Father, right now we, we, we lift those things to you. Father, as we kind of meditate on those things, I want to ask that you would remind our hearts while we're here. We are here to know you. Father, we've got to start there before we can ever make you known. We cannot give away what we do not have. So, Father, in this moment, as we're thinking about the difficulties in our lives, I ask that you would reveal yourself to our hearts. God, that you would let us know where we stand with you. <coughs> Lord, this morning as, we, as we're taking time to think through this stuff, Father, the sin that's in our lives that we know that we keep turning back to, whatever that is for each person in this room personally, Father, I ask that you would work in us, God, that you would bring us to repentance, that we would move beyond just feeling sorry and guilty about that sin, but Father, that you would make a change in our hearts. Father, I want to give a moment this morning for everyone individually where they are, to silently pray about those things, to release those things to you, to identify those things. Father, the things that you're already pointing out in our hearts. This morning, church, take a moment to let God deal with that. Jesus, this morning, I I, want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Father, if there's anybody here who does not have a relationship with you, Father, I ask that you would impress that upon their heart this morning for their own benefit. Father, that you would allow this to be an opportunity for, for them to mark this moment in their lives where they are turning away from sin, where they are repenting of running from you and embracing the relationship that you have offered to us. God, I am so thankful that you sent John to prepare us, to prepare our hearts to know Jesus, to help us to understand that the problem is not in the activities that we do. The problem is in our hearts. Father, this week as we think about this message again, as we discuss it in life groups, as we meditate on it, Father, I ask that you would do two things. First, I ask that you would Reveal the areas in our lives where there is sin that we need to repent for. And on the heels of that, Father, I ask that you would give us the strength to turn away from that sin, God, because we cannot do it on our own. If we could, there'd be no reason for repentance. Father, all of us need your might. We need your strength. We need your courage 
to turn away from that sin and turn towards you. Father, we know that Scripture tells us that when we turn away from sin, when we turn to you, we experience true freedom. We know that that when we turn away from sin, the guilt and the shame that covers our lives will be released, Father. The weight will be lifted off of our shoulders, the weight that we have carried for so long. Father, I ask that, that right now, in this moment and throughout the week, that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us to a repentance. And Father, that as, as you draw us, as you allow us to repent, that the world around us would see your fruit. Father, that we would see your fruit in our own lives. Jesus, we want to know you. And we want the people in our lives who don't know you to know you as well, God. We want to make you known. But we don't have the power to do that, and we confess that this morning. Father, we confess that there is sin in our lives that we need to repent of. Jesus, we thank you for the love that you poured out, the grace that you offered to us. And we thank you in your own name. Amen.